everyone. Welcome back to the podcast that now has a name. I'm super excited. The Lotus Life Podcast. So just really quick, why the Lotus Life? Why that name? Well, some of you may already know that from 2011 to 2016, I owned a yoga center located in Syracuse, New York, and it was called Lotus Life Yoga Center. So this is a nod to the past. This is a nod to that community and how incredible and beautiful it was. And I want to bring it back. Plus, I use a lot of symbolism now in my marketing and just the way I teach my philosophy of enduring the difficultness of life or loving the mud, being in the mud, rooting down. And of course, this visualization of a lotus, which goes through the mud, goes through the difficulty of life and then blooms and finally blossoms. So um, the journey of the lotus itself is just um, ubiquitous, of course, in, in the yogic culture, but it, it means something very dear to me because of my previous studio. So there you have it. Yay. The studio has a name or the, the podcast has a name based on a studio. Yeah. Um, and also based on where I'm heading next. Um, I have some things in the mix of Designing a new website, a new name, hint, has something to do with Lotus Life. And it's just a whole different platform, which allows me to do community spaces and you guys can talk to each other and bond and also a way of getting digitized courses and events with me, et cetera. All that is coming. So this is kind of the first step, naming it and and saying it out loud and, and starting to share it. Lotus Life is back, baby. Yeah. So today's podcast also has something else you may have noticed. Um, I've got some intro and outro music, just you know, making it feel a little bit more podcasty. Um, and also, I, I just love playing around with music. So um, here it is. I'll tee it off in the very official way. Welcome back to the Lotus Life podcast. My name is Kim Fisher. So happy you are here once again with me. This is the third episode where I'm going to be diving into the history of yoga. I'm going to try to do it in under 45 minutes, hopefully 30 minutes. I'm just going to hammer away at a couple high-level topics that I think always come up at the dinner table when you're sitting around with a bunch of yogis. And someone asks, why do you eat meat? So how does vegetarianism relate to the history of yoga? Let's find out. Welcome back. So vegetarianism is an interesting topic in the yoga world. And I love talking about it because I often um, poke people a little bit. And I think I, um, well, I, I like to poke holes in people's story about vegetarianism because it, it's, so, it's such a hot topic. And, um, there are people that are on one side of the camp or the other, right? There's hardcore vegetarian and vegans, which by the way, I used to be at some point in my life. And then there's hardcore people that are like, no, you can still do yoga. You can still be spiritual and you can still eat meat. And then like they fight all the time. Right. So you probably know someone who is in one of those camps. You're probably someone who's in one of those camps, which is, you know, this, this topic is, is going to touch, push some buttons, which is great. We should be able to have these conversations and think and have a different perspective, which I just want to say that I do find personally that if you're in the vegetarian camp, not everyone, 
But most people are so passionate about it for obvious reasons or maybe not so obvious reasons. And I get that. But don't forget the reason you're doing yoga is to expand your mind and to, yeah, live the life you want. But we don't want to hold anyone else up to our standards. Each person is on their own path. And so I guess I get very irritated when when I talk to other yoga students and other yoga teachers and it's vegetarianism or nothing. Um, So this is why I dive into the history of yoga. When I'm sitting around with other people and someone's eating meat or someone's not eating meat and they wonder why I'm eating meat, because I bet you're wondering, do I eat meat? Yes, I do. On occasion, um, I eat it when I want. I eat it if if I want it. Yeah. I used to be vegetarian. I used to be vegan. I did that for many years. It's wonderful. I still eat a shit ton of fruits and veggies. <laughs> so um, that doesn't, you know, I didn't substitute one for the other, but I do really enjoy meat. And at times I feel tremendously better um, after eating and just getting a lot of uh, iron in. So yes, so I am uh, I, omnivorous, right? That's the term, I guess, if we want to throw terms around. But the reason I'm comfortable with it is because I know about the history of yoga. All right. So when everyone says, Hey, I'm vegetarian and be, you know, I do yoga and I'm vegetarianism and that's just the way it should be. What they're saying is that they have been taught within the school of yoga or not the school of yoga, but the time period known as classical yoga. And I'll talk about the different time periods in just a moment. Classical yoga, the characteristics of it are this. There was a man or a bunch of writers who used the pen name Patanjali. Okay, so there's a mystery around it. It either was a person or it was a bunch of people who who just had this collective pen name Patanjali. And the Yoga Sutras um, lay out dualism. Okay, so this was a time period of dualism. You have non-dualism and you have dualism. And dualism basically says this, okay, you're dirty, you need to purify yourself, you need to clear, clean yourself up, and you need to do so because you're nowhere near God. You're nowhere near enlightenment. God is way over there in this really holy place, and you are so dirty and impure. You got to do these things, clean yourself up, and purify, 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 and then raise your vibration, like transform. You're not good where you are now. Transform, and then you'll find holiness. You'll find this this beautiful uh, Brahmin path, monkhood, I don't know. And that's fine. Um, I think there are there's a lot of benefits to um, studying dualism, to uh, certainly studying Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Um, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of really interesting ways of viewing life and the body and relationships. Um, but there is a shadow that comes out of that, especially with our Western culture. And that is okay, I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not enough, enough, enough. And I have to do these things that are prescribed to me. And then hopefully I'll be good enough to reach some sort of state of enlightenment or inner joy or feel worthy enough, et cetera. And if you're already someone who's dealing with imposter syndrome or someone who just doesn't have a lot of confidence, self-esteem, et cetera, you're going to take that and it's going to relate to you. You're going to say, that feels really comfortable to me. I get that. And yes, good. I've been looking for a prescription. I've been looking for the steps, the path that's laid out 
so I can purify myself and become spiritual because right now I feel like crap. Okay, so it, I don't mean this in a mean way, but it's very marketable. Dualism is very, very marketable. The other thing that comes out of the classical yoga time period is um, the yamas and niyamas. And the yamas and niyamas are sort of like the Ten Commandments where we have these five yamas, five niyamas, and they walk into a bar. (laughs) Just joking. Um, We have five yamas that are things to to restrain from, and then the niyamas are the things to observe. And again, it's very prescriptive. It's beautiful. I love and reference the yamas and niyamas all the time, and myself in my personal practice and in teachings because they're valuable. They're little signposts along the way to help make sure that you're sort of heading in the right direction. I like to think of them as the bumper lanes and the bumper bowling, like the inflatables and the lanes, right? If you start to lean one way or the other, or get off the path, so to speak, it's there to gently guide you back. Very, very helpful. But it can lead us to believe that if we're not doing those things laid out in the yamas and niyamas or in the yoga sutras, that we're a bad yogi, that we're a bad yogini, that we are imperfect or worse, we'll never achieve the state of happiness and freedom that yoga claims to have. So there's separation. There's separation. Now, yoga is about 5,000 years old, approximately. Classical yoga is smack dab in the middle. Now, I used to know the dates of all of these when I had to you know, I was doing yoga teacher training programs. I would have these memorized. I, I've been out of that role for quite some time. So I don't have the dates, but it doesn't matter. You can look them up. I think the general point is, is what I want to get here. So you've got classical yoga smack dab in the middle with dualism. Before and after that, we have non-dualism. And this is really important. Before I go to that, I just, I just want to highlight that difference. But before we go into non-dualism, I want to point out one thing with the yamas and niyamas. Okay, so classical yoga, yamas and niyamas, because of dualism. The very first yama is ahimsa. Ahimsa translates to nonviolence, non-harming. One of the ways that you can practice non-harming is to be a vegetarian or to be vegan. Right, non-harming of animals, right there. So there's the connection. Just in case it wasn't obvious, I'm not assuming anything with my listeners here. So ahimsa, don't harm anything, don't harm yourself, um, don't speak bad things, don't think bad things, you know, be a good person and, and think about your actions in this world. Love it. What the hell's wrong with that? Nothing. But what I want to get across here is that that, that is not the only way of thinking and being when it comes to yoga. We have 5,000 years of yogic history. Dualism is a tiny little point right in the middle. But everyone loves right now, we're in, we're in um, modern, we're in modern yoga right now. That's the name of our, our uh, period, our time period. Everyone loves Patanjali. Everyone loves the Yamas and Niyamas. And that's fine. I love them too. But the problem is we don't go anywhere else in history. So this is what this podcast is about. I'm taking you through the history. So we're going to start way back at the beginning, okay? We're going to start in 
archaic yoga were in the Indus Valley. Um, and once was called the Sarvasvati River, it is now dried up. In the Indus Valley, we have a fertile valley. Civilization is born here. And this is where we find some of the first artifacts, archaeologists, there it is, have discovered little clay pots and clay tiles of individuals sitting in the lotus pose and things like this. And, you know, um, carvings of Nandi, uh, uh, Shiva's um, bowl, uh, and and all these, right? So like yoga, this is the birthplace of it in the Indus Valley. This time period is non-dualism, non-dualistic. We have tantric yoga, we have samkhya yoga, we have some of the more obscure, very bizarre practices, and we have in this period and the one after it, which is um, pre-classical yoga, we have a lot of sacrificial uh, rituals. We have a lot of bloodshed. And if you think about that time period, I mean, we're talking a long time ago, there wasn't exactly penicillin just hanging around in everyone's shelf and aspirin, right? Like death during childbirth was incredibly high. Death in general, you did not live a long life. And if you did, chances are you weren't living in very a pure or clean life. And so this idea of purify yourself wasn't around yet. And also, I don't know if personally speaking, if it would have held much merit because you know what? The hell with that. You know, life is dirty. Life is scary. Life is disease ridden. Life is starvation, drought. Um, you know, we had Indra, the god of wind, and we have we have Surya, the god of the sun. Right? The elements in nature were worshipped, and it was very common, and it still is in parts of India to co- go up to your deities in the statues with. Um, a, a, a sacrificial offering of a chicken, right? Blood offering was very important back then. That was a time period where eating meat was fine. Yes, there was vegetarianism, of course, but this idea of ahimsa wasn't around yet, okay? If it was, it wasn't in any scriptures that anyone's ever seen. It was survive and then thrive through meditation primarily. We didn't even see evidence of asanas yet in in the way you and I think of yoga now on the sticky mat, the way you move your body. A lot of it back then was breath work and meditation. Okay, so we've got we've got archaic yoga, they're eating meat, it's warfare, there's bloodshed, no one's talking about him. So yeah, and by the way, this is non-dual time. So that means this beautiful statement right here. Non-dualism means you and God, you and spirit are right here sandwiched together. And remember, in dualism, I'm here, God's there. There's this huge chasm between us, and I've got to do a lot of things to get purified and perfect in order to become spiritual and holy and good enough. Non-dualism says, uh, screw that. You are absolutely perfect the way you are. Just fucking realize it. Wake up. Wake up to it. Boom. There you go. Okay. Done. Now live your life. (laughs) live your life and know this every day and then teach other people that they're also awakened beings. I don't know about you, but I just like that camp a lot better. It just feels more refreshing. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Buddhism takes that path a lot anyhow, just awaken to the bodhisattva, the enlightened being that you are. So we've got archaic yoga, non-dualistic. We've got pre-classical yoga, 
non-dualistic. Oh, all of a sudden classical yoga comes along and everyone's singing the song of dualism. And then we see ahimsa and vegetarian starts to come up. Then we have a time period after classical yoga called post-classical, where we do see a um, a shift back into non-dualism with uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, although um, actually I want to pause there. I'm not positive right now. I'm I'm doubting myself on the Mahabharata. I don't remember when that came out. But then, so we've got classical, then post-classical, and then we have modern yoga. So those are the stages. We've got archaic, pre-classical, classical, post-classical, and modern yoga. Modern yoga, I would say, is a fun mixture of both, but primarily the commercialism that you see in yoga right now is really tapping into classical yoga. Why? My personal take is that it's fear-based culture, uh, and, and people are tremendously unhappy from the gate, from the jump. So if you give them, and everyone's like, how? Teach me how. What are the steps? Linear, right brain, right? Like, what are the steps? I want to know every single thing, what to do every day. I don't want any more mystery because life is too mysterious already and that's fucking drives me crazy and I'm on medication as a result, right? Um, So people say this, they arrive to yoga because the doctor said, go do yoga. So that's like, okay, well, what's the prescription here? Tell me exactly what to do. People are seeking that when they come to the mat. And if that's what you're seeking, fine, because classical yoga is going to sing, you know, you're going to sing that song and it's going to be a perfect attunement. There's going to be some alchemy there for you. And that's going to be fantastic for quite some time for you. And then this is why I want to talk about the other parts of yoga, because it's important. It's important to practice something and understand where it has come from and where it has gone. And then you can make a more informed decision that sits truly with you, where now you can look and say, well, listen, is it absolutely true then in order to be yogic that I need to be vegetarian? Because Kim just told me in a podcast that for quite some time before classical yoga, vegetarianism and yoga wasn't really linked up the way it is now. Okay, there were still religious groups of people in India who did not eat meat because cows are holy, et cetera. But the way you and I know of yoga and the link to vegetarianism is because of classical yoga, it's because of the yamas and niyamas, it's because of non-dualism, it's because of dualism. So knowing that now, you can make a more informed decision on if vegetarianism was something that was told to you that you had to do, if it was told to you and also modeled to you by the group of people you were hanging out with. What if there was another way to think about that? Ahimsa is beautiful. Vegetarianism does incredible things for our planet and our body. I'm never, ever going to say on my podcast, vegetarianism is dumb or veganism is dumb. It is incredible. Um, and is helping to heal people and the planet in tremendous ways. Go and be vegetarianism. Go and be vegan, but know why you're doing it. That's what I'm getting at. Um, all right, so there it is. There's a brief history of yoga, all these different time periods. And one other thing I guess I'll end with is that when it comes to dualism and non-dualism, I like to have a balance of both in my life. I really personally resonate more with non-dualism it has been very beneficial for me to just understand that I am God. I am that energy. I am spirit. It flows through me and I am a creation of it. 
when I feel separate, when I, and I did practice with non-dualistic uh, practices for many years when I first got started because my teacher at the time was a purely classical yoga teacher. So that's exactly what she believed and that's exactly what she taught. And so that's all I knew was classical yoga. There's this vibe of, you know, purify yourself and do all these things. And if you don't do it, that you're some sort of bad yogi. And that can lead us into a really dangerous trap of shadow and really not serving ourselves the way we need to. But I will say that classical yoga does give us some incredible resources to help us navigate the social complexity of life and really just being a household yogi, having responsibilities, having bills, a career, a family, whatever you have that you have to do and take care of. That householder responsibility it fits nicely into classical yoga big time. Classical yoga gives us Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and especially the Yamas and Niyamas, which are fantastic for helping you understand your relationship to the world and yourself and working to heal it on many levels. Just remember that there's two different paths. There's the dualism and non-dualism and do a little bit of reading of both. You guys, I am so excited that I got to share that with you, and I, I hope that that resonates with you and you let that kick around for a little bit. Um, Georg Ferguson. Georg Ferguson is a fantastic author. Um, he's no longer with us, but he has many, many books out on this topic and the history of yoga in general. So I highly recommend his books if you're looking to dive deeper into this study. Take care, you guys, and I'll talk to you next time.